This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, March 4th, 2010. I'm Caleb Brown. If you believe the 14th Amendment's Privileges or Immunities Clause should have meaning in a world of constitutional liberty, ordered and otherwise, the Supreme Court may have offered something of a disappointment this week. The McDonald gun case may have revealed, according to Institute for Justice Senior Attorney Clark Neely, a more troubling side of our nation's highest court. What do we know now that we did not know the day before um, McDonald was argued? I'm not sure we know anything now that we didn't already know. We have reason to suspect the court isn't nearly as committed to originalism as some of its members claim to be. Is it possible that the fact that uh, those on the court were seemed to be picking apart cases that had yet to come before them under privileges or immunities can be defended in the sense that They've only had the one case as a Supreme Court, that there's only been the one case that uh, um, that dealt head-on with that issue? I don't think so. I mean, frankly, it's a cheap shot to go after an advocate because they are there telling you that they, you know, I think you should overturn 130 years of mistaken precedent. And the idea that that's not going to leave a bit of a mess to clean up or that it's the advocate's responsibility to persuade you that it'll be easy to clean up that mess is both unfair um, and completely unrealistic. So in some sense, then, uh, the reason that uh, the Second Amendment should have been incorporated under the Privileges or Immunities Clause may well have been that there really isn't much substance to that phrase, at least in terms of court precedent? In a sense. I mean, I, just so you know, I don't agree with the term incorporation. I don't think the Second Amendment is incorporated by the 14th Amendment. I believe the right to keep and bear arms is a privilege or immunity of citizenship, and that that is why the 14th Amendment protects the right to keep and bear arms. It so happens that the Second Amendment also protects the right to keep and bear arms, but they're distinct. The Second Amendment, the right to keep and bear arms being a privilege or immunity, does that not then sort of dislodge a, a whole lot of case law? I don't think it dislodges it, but it enables the court maybe to begin moving back towards a more principled basis for protecting individual rights. After all, uh, the court really didn't get in the business of protecting individual rights from state and local governments until the late 1800s in a kind of an ad hoc process by which it just sort of said, well, that right's fundamental enough to protect, but that one's not. Okay, now this right's fundamental enough to protect. But that whole process was done completely divorced from the history and context of the relevant constitutional provision, which is the 14th Amendment. Why anyone would go to bat for that and want to continue doing it, I have no idea. What should we understand a privilege or immunity to be in the context of the 14th Amendment? In trying to understand what are privileges or immunities of American citizenship, you have to look basically at what were the things that the framers and the ratifiers of the 14th Amendment had in mind in terms of what were included. That term, privileges or immunities, was essentially synonymous to them with rights, and specifically the rights that a free people in a free society enjoy, and also specifically the rights that are necessary to enjoy in order not to be in a state of constructive servitude, which was pre precisely what the uh, 14th Amendment was trying to, to essentially resist. How might we think differently about uh, certain amendments to the U.S. Constitution were we to think of uh, privileges or immunities uh, 
versus uh, some other conception? Well, one of the things we wouldn't have any real question about is whether the right to keep and bear arms is protected, because that was one of the rights that was mentioned most often in connection with the 14th Amendment and the Privileges or Immunities Clause in particular. And we know there's really good historical reason for that, because throughout the South, people were being disarmed and lynched. Uh, The people who passed the 14th Amendment were outraged by that. They intended to put an end to it. And that's what the 14th Amendment was intended, among the things the 14th Amendment was intended to do. And other rights that we would look at would include, for example, uh, economic liberty, the ability to earn a living, which is absolutely something you need to be able to do in order not to be in a state of servitude anymore. And those rights were being interfered with in the wake of the Civil War, the right to own property, to enter into contracts. These are all examples of things that people were being prevented from doing in the wake of the Civil War that are necessary to do in order to be a full member of society and that the 14th Amendment was quite obviously designed to protect. So in not reviving privileges or immunities, um, or I should say putting some meat on on the bones of that phrase, um, did this allow a lot of things to occur in the 1930s that may not have otherwise occurred? I think so. Um, So, for example, you had uh, really kind of an onslaught. You had two things essentially that happened in the 30s as part of the progressive era, you had essentially the Supreme Court really rejecting any serious conception of the federal government as one of limited or enumerated powers. And then you also, of course, had the Supreme Court essentially saying, look, when it comes to economic regulations and property, we're really not going to be in the business of protecting rights in any serious way anymore. And yeah, I think that at least as to the latter part of that, a more historically contextual understanding of the 14th Amendment, including specifically the Privileges or Immunities Clause, would have at least stood in the way of that sort of wholesale um, retreat from meaningful protection for economic liberties. At least the court would have had to admit that it was going against the expressed will of the American public in abandoning those liberties. I'm going to ask you the same question I asked to Tim Sandifer in, in a previous podcast, and that is, how would a revival of privileges or immunities inform the fight uh, currently going on by attorneys Boyas and Olson uh, in their fight on behalf of equality of marriage in California? I'm actually not sure that it would. It strikes me that that may be more of an equal protection question or even a due process question than a privileges or immunities question. But if the issue is uh, what separates uh, a free people uh, from those in servitude, why wouldn't that apply? Well, it might. But what I would say is that you really have to kind of stretch to come to the conclusion that, for example, um, rights for for gay people were very much on anybody's mind in 1868. I don't think they were. What would be, a, I think, a more pertinent question is, does the government have any legitimate basis for refusing to extend to gay people the same rights that heterosexuals enjoy? And I think that's a slightly different constitutional question, one that more implicates equal protection and possibly also due process, um, where the real questions are, why are you treating these people differently and do you have, have a sufficient justification for doing so as opposed to is this a privilege or immunity of citizenship, i.e. a right to do something? It's a, it's a subtle but I think important distinction. Uh, Justice Scalia said to uh, Alan Gura during the argument that even he had acquiesced to the idea of uh, substantive due process. 
I thought it was an extraordinarily disingenuous comment and frankly disrespectful to Alan. And um, I don't think he did himself any favors with that comment. Um, Justice Scalia has consistently mocked the substantive due process doctrine. He's made clear that he doesn't believe in it. He may have acquiesced in it as a matter of precedent, but he certainly doesn't appear to believe in it as a matter of principle. Uh, How in the world he would essentially mock an advocate who was saying to him, look, there's two ways to do this. There's one way, substantive due process, which you have consistently disparaged and which you have gone on record as saying you don't even really think is a legitimate doctrine. Or there's this other way, which is based on the text and history of the Constitution, and that's the way that I'm advocating. How in the world an originalist justice would presume to essentially mock an advocate who is presenting that choice? And that was the choice that was on offer yesterday during McDonald, and then ridicule the advocate for suggesting that the court go with with text and history is beyond me. And I don't think it was one of Justice Scalia's better moments, to be honest with you. Justice Scalia also brought up this idea that which of these is going to make our lives easier, uh, overturning this 130-plus year precedent or, uh, in some sense, going with the flow, accepting this as a settled law and moving on. It was funny, near the beginning of the argument, you know, Justice Scalia asks Alan Gura, uh, would it be any easier to do this through privileges or immunities? And he, he, he said it in such a way, you got the impression he, he sort of thought it was a rhetorical question, like, you know, I'm, I'm sort of telling you that it wouldn't be easier. And what was funny is the whole rest of the argument was this incredibly powerful and eloquent illustration of the fact that the answer to that question is, yes, it would. Um, My colleague Bob McNamara at the Institute for Justice pointed this out at the end of the argument. He said, you know, the whole argument had the impression of like this kind of French salon where the justices are talking about, well, which rights are fundamental and are there degrees of how fundamental? And and Justice Breyer said, well, maybe Madison had this chart of fundamentality. And, and it was just a kind of an unhinged, wandering discussion. Whereas if the court had done what it normally does, which is look at text and history, it would have been a very focused discussion. There was incredible amounts of evidence as to what the 14th Amendment meant with respect to the right to keep and bear arms, and the court didn't show the least bit of interest in that. They could have had a very focused, very streamlined discussion yesterday if they had taken privileges or immunities seriously. And so the answer to Justice Scalia's question is, uh, and I think this would come as a surprise to him given the way he phrased it, yes, Justice Scalia, it would be easier. On that note, there was very little discussion of some of the events that led up to uh, the 14th Amendment that relate directly to the Second Amendment. And can that be defended on the fact that, well, it's all in the briefs, it's well-known history? No, it can't be defended. It was appalling. Um, The court showed virtually no interest, as far as I could tell during the arguments, in the history of the 14th Amendment the events that gave rise to it, and how those might inform our interpretation of the 14th Amendment. I can't think of any reason why those issues wouldn't have been discussed other than uh, a consensus among the justices that to do so would in some sense be embarrassing somehow or put them in a position where they would have to take seriously arguments and theories that they do not wish to take seriously. Maybe there's some other reason, but if there is, I can't think of it. Clark Neely is a senior attorney at the Institute for Justice. You can read more about the Privileges or Immunities Clause and the meaning of the 14th Amendment at our website, cato.org.